Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder if, like me, you can identify with the Jewish theologian who said, I only pray when I'm in trouble, but then I'm in trouble all of the time, so I pray all of the time. But you will probably agree that trouble is never too far from our experience or the experience of those who are near and dear to us. And sometimes that trouble involves suffering, so I will certainly not trivialize what I'm saying. Few endure what Job endured, and yet he found peace. And I want us to explore just very briefly this morning how he struggled, and in particular, how he found peace. How was he able to pray that prayer right at the end of the book that we've just listened to? I hasten to add that I'm not going to arrive at any simplistic answers, because that's the trap that Job's so-called comforters fell into, and they only serve to increase his anguish. So let's attempt to summarize the story of Job. Right at the start of the book, the narrator tells us that Job was blameless, I quote, and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons, three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. But perhaps just as importantly, the, the narrator has told us that he was blameless and upright. But we're told that God says of Job, There is no one like him. He is blameless and upright. Now, that's important to the story, so don't forget that bit. God declares that Job is blameless. Then we, the reader, are made aware of a conversation that takes place between God and Satan. Satan essentially says to God, this man, Job, of course he follows you. Look how you've blessed him. You've made him top of the Forbes rich list. What else would he do but follow you? So God, in response, gives Satan permission to test Job, but with the condition that his life must be spared. Now, don't forget that Job is not aware of this conversation that takes place. 
That's also important. And then over a period of time, Job loses, first of all, his wealth, all his vast numbers of livestock, his family all die in various circumstances, everyone, all seven sons and three daughters, all killed. And finally, his health. Satan inflicts Job with sores, we're told, on every part of his body. His wife pleads on him to curse God and die. And in the culture of his day, he shaves his head and covers himself and sits in dust and ashes in mourning. So as we read the story, we, the readers, have a dilemma. Because a man whom God has described as blameless loses his wealth, loses his family, and finally his health. And the loss and the suffering is, how shall we say it, sanctioned, allowed by God without a word of explanation to Job. So as a man of God, Job's instinctive reaction is to declare the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. But we're still only in chapter 2. There's a long way to go. And as his suffering continues, a very different and quite understandable response takes over. And from chapter 3, we move into his poetic speeches and encounter a mind that is in turmoil, a sense of bitterness and anger and rage and isolation from God. Just listen to a few of his cries of anguish, just to give you a flavor of it. Oh, that it would please God to crush me. I loathe my life and would live no longer. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, only turmoil. He feels there's nothing left to live for but he continues to pour out his anger and frustration at God, directed to God. And God's continued silence only serves to intensify his anguish. He cannot defend himself. He can't turn the clock back. He cannot defend what he thinks that God is inflicting on him. But he can try to defend himself verbally. And that's what he does over many chapters. And he, in effect, challenges God to a lawsuit. God, I want you to declare publicly and explain what has happened to me and why it's happened. So he creates this sort of metaphorical scenario where God and he are both obliged to speak. Now, let us remember that this is a man whom God de declares to be blameless. So, our dilemma as readers of the story continues. So, now he convinces, commences a lengthy defense, and he ends with a review of his entire life to try to determine, is there anything in my past that I could have done that have, would warrant what is happening to me? He, goes through, he works his way through his entire life. 
And then we get to chapter 31, and still within this metaphorical scenario of his lawsuit, he imagines himself signing a declaration. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me, and let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Let the Almighty answer me. He demands from God a response. And the chapter ends, the words of Job are ended. You feel as you read it, everything has been said, everything has been expressed. He's come to the end. He, he, he can't, there's nothing else to say. He said it all, and he's demanded God to respond. And he has expressed some of the most intense, the deepest feelings of anguish imaginable. I've left out the part that Job's friends had to play in the story. They make simplistic theological statements about God which only make matters worse. You, you may have encountered such people. And we reach chapter 38 before God finally speaks. And what on earth is he going to say? How is God going to defend himself? What's he going to say about the suffering that he's inflicted on a man that he declared to be innocent and yet never give him an explanation? It's a lengthy speech. In fact, it's, it's more than one speech from chapters 38 to 41. And it's remarkable for what it omits as much as it is for what it contains because at no point does Job, does God offer Job an explanation as to what's happened. The speech asks questions rather than gives answers. Here is just a flavor of some of them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I'm quite sure how you answer a question like that. Who marked off its foundations? who shut in the sea with doors. Then questions about the management of the universe. Have you ever ordered the morning forth? Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you, Job, bring forth the constellations in their seasons? And then he moves to animals, and in particular, animals that are wild and mysterious. And he goes on to focus on behemoth and leviathan, almost certainly the hippo and the crocodile. Animals that are wild, mysterious, and even threatening. And their very existence is, is incomprehensible to Job, well, and to us for that matter. So what's going on here? What is God doing? He's never directly responded to Job's challenge, and yet in the end, as we've heard the prayer from chapter 42, God, Job is entirely satisfied and at peace. How can that be? It's apparent in the earlier speeches of Job that he already believes in the power and wisdom of God. God was aware that he, Job believed that already. He didn't need to convince him of that. 
He says that on many occasions. What God do, it seems to be doing, and this is left to us to try to interpret. We hear, we listen, we, we, we read God's speeches, and we, we read of Job's response. And we as the reader are invited to determine what in those speeches made such an impact on Job. What God seems to be doing is to invite Job to reconsider the mystery and the complexity and the sheer unfathomableness of his creation, of the world that God has created. And when he moves on to the hippo and the crocodile, he says of them, these are creatures which I quote, I made along with you. They're mysterious, they're wild, they're terrifying, they're threatening, but I made them along with you. And I'm not explaining to you why I made them. And they're, they, they're animals that even threaten you. They threaten your existence. They're of no use to you. You cannot train them. You cannot eat them. You can't domesticate them in any way. They're just wild and supremely wild and terrible. Their existence is a mystery. Perhaps Job concluded that his suffering was like that. Perhaps the question in Job's mind began to shift from why he was troubled, why he was suffering, to the question, can I trust a loving and wise God to manage his universe? It somehow began to make sense to Job that the God who calls out the constellations, who created them and calls them out in their season, cannot be understood by human reason. But can I trust him? There's something else very important in this encounter with God. It was personal. The narrator of the book introduces God's speeches in chapter 38 by saying, the Lord said to Job, this was personal. Job had a personal encounter with this God, the creator. And the encounter ends when he prays, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful. For me to know. And in a slightly different translation to verse 6, the end of his prayer, this is how he ends. Therefore, I melt in reverence before you, and I have received my comfort, even while sitting in dust and ashes. What a remarkable place to reach. I have received my comfort even while sitting in dust and ashes. Job's circumstances had not changed at all at this stage. But his life was turned around, his life was reorientated by a personal encounter with the living God, the creator of the universe. And as a result, he found peace.
We have come this morning perhaps with our troubles, with questions, perhaps even doubts, to meet with God, to worship God. Let's not forget that we've come to, the, to worship the God who met with Job, the same God. The God who marked the foundations of the earth, the God who called the constellations into being. A God of glory, a God of power, a God of holiness and wisdom. But also a God of mystery. A God who created the hippo and the crocodile along with you and me. We need, as we come and worship such a God, all the assistance we can get. We need the help of the poets, the hymn writers, the authors, the musicians, to help us comprehend what we cannot comprehend in normal language. Our imaginations need to be stirred to, to meet with such a God. In the hymn, Love Divine, Charles Wesley speaks of being lost in wonder, love, and praise. And when we consider the God who calls the morning forth, who calls the constellations in their seasons, we will be lost in wonder. But if that was all there was to say about God, I'm not sure that we would this morning find peace. Is such a God interested in my troubles? Can I in any way trust such a God? Does such a God listen to me? The glorious mystery of the gospel is that the word who called the constellations into being became flesh. And that words of that wonderful Christmas reading from John 1. So let's try along with John to comprehend this. John goes on, he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And we see Jesus kneeling in front of his disciples with a basin of water, washing their feet, speaking to them as his friends and speaking of his love for them. The Creator God in the person of Jesus. Jesus, who by his Spirit is with us here. And we gaze at the cross and try to comprehend his love, dealing once as Jesus dealt once and for all with the accuser who caused Job's troubles and causes ours. And Jesus, here in our midst this morning, immediate, personal, relational, that's the exciting message of the gospel. Who loves us more than we can ever imagine. A God who listened to Job's cries and didn't condemn him for it. 
and he listens to ours. And when we grasp this, we are, in the words of Charles Wesley, lost in love. Contemporary worship has brought a freshness and intimacy to our worship, which is so welcome and so needed. But perhaps we just need to be aware of the danger that we can be lost in love but not lost in wonder. And when we lose that sense of awe and wonder and reverence and mystery, how do we deal with the times when our cries of anguish appear to go unheard? Job found peace when he could pray. I melt in reverence before you. I have received my comfort even while sitting in dust and ashes. As we continue in our worship this morning, may God help us to be lost in wonder at the God of the constellations lost in love of the Jesus who gave his life for us. And if we are, we will most certainly be lost in praise as well. Amen.